Morning, friends. Good to see you today, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Bushy-tailed, at least. <laughs> Let me invite you to open your version of God's Word to Mark chapter uh, 6. As we continue in this first half of Mark's Gospel, I want to pick up where we left off last week. We'll be in verses 7 through 13 this morning. So follow along with me, please, in your version of, of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. God's uh, inerrant word. May he uh, bless what we've read. Let's pray and ask for his help as we look into these verses today. Pray with me again, please. Lord, as Pat just prayed, we echo that prayer and ask for illumination. Quicken our minds and hearts. Give us eyes, seeing eyes and hearing ears, Jesus. Um, let your word fall on good soil this morning and may it bear fruit. Uh, may, it, may it spring up and produce 40 and 60 and even 100 fold. Jesus, uh, do this among us, we ask. Uh, strengthen me and my mind and heart and my voice to proclaim your truth. Help us, Jesus, and speak to us now by your spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. There have been many famous duos throughout history, uh, people who are uh, best known for their association with someone else. Uh, a few examples from recent history, uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto, of course, Tom and Jerry, Bugs and Daffy, Lucy and Ricky, Abbott and Costello, Bonnie and Clyde, Felix and Oscar, Frodo and Sam, Holmes and Watson, Lennon and McCartney, Sonny and Cher, Scooby and Shaggy, Phineas and Ferb, Romeo and Juliet, Bert and Ernie. And, of course, the original dynamic duo, Batman and Robin. Well, our passage this morning, Jesus begins to send out the twelve two by two, or in the original language, it says duo, duo. So these are the original dynamic duos that we're reading about today. And our passage has two things to say about these duos. Two things I'd like you to see in verses 7 through 13. And the first of these is the sending of the 12. Jesus summons his 12 men and sent them out with his authority. There are four parts or components in this sending of the 12 out. And the first is their authority. 
Uh, the twelve were given the authority of Jesus, and we see this in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. We're not told in these verses where this uh, occurs, where this sending out uh, if you were with us last Sunday morning, we were uh, in a new place down over here in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Uh, later on in the chapter, we'll see them again up here by the Sea of Galilee, I think on the lake again. So somewhere in Galilee, this occurs. Uh, Jesus himself had been going to the villages around Nazareth as we closed out last week's passages. So it's safe to conclude somewhere in this region. There's no uh, crowd mentioned either. There, there are not many gathered around Jesus, just 12. Same 12 that Mark mentioned earlier. Uh, he mentions them back in chapter 3. Uh, Mark says, And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, and that's important, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The very thing we see Jesus doing this morning in verse 7. Uh, the verb, look at it again, it says, uh, He called the twelve and began to send them out. That's a very important word, uh, send them out. Um, means to send someone out uh, as an official authorized person, uh, to send them out on an official authorized mission. This is not the same as a disciple. A disciple is a student who learns from a teacher. And of course, that relationship already existed between Jesus and the Twelve. But it also existed between Jesus and many others. The verb to send them out takes these Twelve beyond uh, disciples and places them in a unique category of apostle. Listen to Dr. Sproul define an apostle. He says it's one who is commissioned by his master with the master's own authority, then sent out in the master's name. Jewish law held at this time uh, that to send someone out in this way, it was just as if the sender himself had gone. Uh, so these 12 men were given a special authority that other disciples did not have. They're known as apostles. And we call this authority apostolic authority. These men have authority as officially designated representatives of Christ. And this is why when Paul speaks in his letters, we're not just hearing Paul's words. Paul is merely writing down uh, on behalf of his master what his master wants written to his church. He addresses believers on behalf of the one who sent him. Mark's account is the same. Even though Mark is not listed among the apostles, he gathered his information from the apostle Peter. And so even this gospel of Mark is apostolic in origin. And it was to these 12 men in particular that Jesus gave the task of founding the church. Paul describes it uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, So then, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. These 12 men occupied a unique place in church history. They were the very founders of the New Testament church, and they had unique authority as people sent out by Christ. Christy and I uh, sometimes sent out our own mini-apostles at home. Uh, back when the girls were younger, uh, we would uh, send probably a younger sister up to uh, upstairs to tell their older sister to knock it off and tell them, Dad said so. And giving that been given, having been given that unique authority, the young one would usually cherish the moment of, of marching up the stairs and, and being able to give it to her older sister, knock it off, dad says so. And her little cock-a-doodle-doo of victory there was, but it was effective. And these were our, these were our in a way, many apostles, if you will. The 12 are sent out, well, you know, of course it's much there's much more weight to being sent out by Christ. And the authority, of course, is, is beyond comparison. This was true of the apostles, and I mean these 12. This was true of them in a very special, limited sense. In a secondary sense, in a far more general way, this can all, also be true of all believers. We are also sent out by Jesus Christ to bear his message to those around us. But we do not have the same power and authority as the original 12. And we don't perform the same works that they did. They had unique authority for that period of time for the founding of the New Testament church. But in a very general way, all of us have been sent out by our master. So this is the first component, or the first part we see of their sending, is, and perhaps the most important part, of the authority that they're invested with by their master. Next, Christ goes on to address uh, their provisions, and that's the second part of, uh, the second piece of this sending out. Uh, they were not allowed to take anything on their mission. Uh, look at verse 8 as it describes this. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Imagine taking a family vacation, not having packed the car the night before. Come on, kids, we're going as we are. I mean, you know... It would be awesome, from my point of view. <laughs> but uh, ridiculous, practically speaking. They weren't to take anything uh, except the walking stick, their sandals. You know, we all know they wore chacos back then. And just, just one tunic, one tunic. They were not to take food. They were not to take a bag, and that might refer to a beggar's bag, they were not allowed to beg for their needs along the way. 
nor were they allowed to take extra spending money, uh, nor a, a second tunic. The second tunic often doubled as a blanket at nighttime. They could take nothing but the clothes on their backs. Now, that's very strict. What, what was the reason for those strict measures? Jesus was teaching the 12 to be completely dependent on him uh, for every need. The Lord did this with Israel uh, in a similar way in the book of Exodus. They were instructed to eat the Passover in this way. Listen for the similarities. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And as Israel learned to depend on the Lord for their provisions in the wilderness, so the twelve had to learn that Christ would supply everything they needed as they went out to represent him. And you and I can rely on the same provision as we're assured uh, by Paul. As we represent Christ to the world, the Lord says he will provide our needs in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now further on, when the twelve had learned this lesson, uh, they were sent out again, and these strictions no longer applied. They were lifted. Jesus said, take whatever you need on this trip. So we see, secondly, the second component of their sending out is their provisions. Third, I want you to see that Jesus goes on to address their comfort. He, he charged them to be content with whatever accommodation they were given them. Look in verse 10. It says, um, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And that sounds really obvious. I mean, you're going to be in a place until you leave the place. That's not what he means. He says, don't move around if you find a place with better accommodations. You get there and you stay there. You're, you're not here on vacation. You're on mission. You've been commissioned by me to, to declare my message. Paul told Timothy something very similar to this. He said, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And so these men are, are told, hey, don't mess around with your accommodations. Don't go to the next place if it's got air conditioning. You stay put and remain there. Don't get entangled with those kind of concerns. This is his third component, and there's one more that I want you to notice too, and that's their disposition as they go out. Uh, perhaps we don't think of this as we read these verses, but the fourth component of this sending out of the 12 is, is their, dition, uh, their uh, um, disposition, their their they were to carry out their mission in a, in a serious way. And Jesus instructs them this, uh, uh, gives these instructions in verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, what does that have to do with their dis disposition? Well, when, when a Jewish person... Uh, returned to the land of Israel from a journey somewhere outside of Israel, 
they would stop at the border of Israel and they would shake the dust of Gentile nations off of their feet. They didn't want to bring in non-Jewish dust into the Holy Land. And so they would shake the dust off their feet so as not to contaminate their homeland. And when the Twelve are instructed to do this on Jewish soil, no less, it was a warning to that town that they were really not part of true Israel. Think of the implications. Shaking off that dust from that town was what an Israel did coming in from a Gentile nation. And these men are shaking the dust of our town off of their feet. What does that mean for us? It meant that town was considered a pagan place and would be cut off from the kingdom of God if they did not repent. It was a serious gesture. And so the twelve are sent out with this, not morose, but, but, but dead serious, with a sense of urgency about this, with a sense that there are lives in the balance, with a sense that eternity was at stake for this town. Here's an example of this disposition. It's from a Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter. You probably don't know him, but this is how he, this is the disposition he had as he stood up to preach about 450-ish years ago. He said, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. Now, frankly, I have to tell you that I did not get up here today considering myself a dying man, preaching to dying people, but that is true, isn't it? Uh, Baxter knew the, the seriousness of his job, uh, of preaching the good news to Christ, that lives out in front of them hung in the balance. And he would do it seriously. Listen to John Piper. He describes a similar, similar disposition in a Scottish pastor uh, named Thomas Chalmers. Uh, Chalmers was, he would never make it in our culture because he preached from a written manuscript. That's where guys write out the whole sermon uh, on paper and put it in front of them. He would he would not look up from his notes. He would read his notes. He would even use his finger to follow across the written line. Jonathan Edwards was similar in this regard. And he also preached without expression and without using gestures. So imagine somebody not going like this, like I do at times, and not using any expressions, but, you know, pretty much a deadpan. And yet Piper notes his fame and power in the pulpit were legendary. This man shook the places where he preached. And someone who heard Chalmers preach, uh, who was actually in attendance and heard him, they asked him what made him so effective. And the man replied, it is his blood earnestness. It is his blood earnestness, or the phrase I like to use or used when I was a youth pastor, serious as a heart attack. Uh, 
That's how the 12 were instructed to share the good news of the kingdom with this blood earnestness, with, with this sense of urgency. It's as if Jesus is saying, warn those who don't receive you or listen to you. Shake the dust off your feet to, to demonstrate to them that they are not true Israelites. Tell them that unless they repent, they will be excluded from the kingdom of God. And it's been said, and I agree, that the church in our era needs to adopt a similar sense of earnestness and the same sense of seriousness and not act like we're here at a country club enjoying the clink of our coffee cups together because there are lives hanging in the balance. John Piper kind of draws this conclusion from Thomas Chalmers and others. The fact is that the glory of these preachers was their earnestness, an earnestness that might be called gravity. From that we have fallen so far that we can scarcely find positive categories to describe the atmosphere of this old preaching. Most people today have so little experience of deep earnest, reverent, powerful encounters with God in preaching that the only associations that come to mind when, when the notion is mentioned are that the preacher is morose or boring or dismal or sullen or gloomy or surly or unfriendly. See, I'm supposed to be lighthearted. Uh, the culture would have me walk, have you walking out here with me having made you feel better. And Piper says, we've lost this gravity. And this is the, they're, they're actually sent out. Jesus tells them, shake the dust off your feet. Give them a prophetic warning that they're a pagan uh, city, not really Israelites at all, and, and will not inherit the kingdom of God unless they turn from their sin and believe in me. That is the disposition he sends out these men with. The disposition of blood earnestness and this urgency. Well, this, the 12 are sent out. And this is the first thing we encounter in our passage today. And we've noticed these four things that go into the sending. The four components are authority, their provisions, their comfort, and their disposition. This brings us to a second thing I want you to see about these dynamic duos. And the second thing we find is the success of the 12. We find in our passage the success of the 12. They, they successfully complete their mission, carrying out three activities. Uh, three activities they involve themselves in. And the first we see them uh, doing is proclaiming. We see them proclaiming, and this is in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is an important Greek term. It's translated uh, usually either by the word proclaimed, like it is here, or with the word preach. It means to make something known loudly. 
uh, publicly. It describes what a king's messenger would do upon entering a town. He would unroll the king's announcement and proclaim loudly, Thus saith the king! Uh, or words to that effect. A few weeks ago, we saw Jesus cast out a legion of demons from a man across the Sea of Galilee in Gerasa. And Jesus instructed the man, uh, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim. That's our word. He began to announce publicly, uh, in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. When Jesus began his own public ministry, uh, the Gospel of Matthew records from that time Jesus began to preach, there's our word, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And then later Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, that's our word again there. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And this is what we find these apostles doing, the twelve doing, as they went out, they are preaching or proclaiming Christ's word. Now you don't have to be up here in front of a group to be a herald of Christ. You don't have to speak loudly before a room of people. You can do that with uh, a neighbor, just by sharing the good news of Christ, you don't have to be uh, actually acting like a town herald. I'm not encouraging you to walk out in the cul-de-sac this afternoon and say, thus says the Lord God, although that might have quite an effect on your cul-de-sac. <laughs> you certainly would get a response from someone. And look at what they proclaim later in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Wow, what a popular message. Well, it's the very same thing that their master proclaimed at the beginning of his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're just imitating the master. That's his message after all. What's it mean to repent, though? It's, it's kind of one of those church words that has used, been used so frequently that it kind of loses its meaning. And repentance means to have a change of, of mind or a change of heart. It's a change of mind or heart that regrets a former way of thinking and living and results in a new way of thinking and living. Let me read that again. It's a change of mind or heart that regrets a former way of thinking and living and results in a new way of thinking and living. So, that's a lot to ask of somebody. If you're sharing with your neighbor, and say, hey friend, Christ calls you to whether you use the word or not, repent, calls you to have a change of mind and heart and leave the old way behind. Isn't that a lot to ask for someone? How can we, how can we expect uh, 
somebody to change their direction and to reorient themselves in the direction of Jesus. How can we expect that? It's because we read in Scripture that just like faith, repentance is the gift of God. It's what God gives someone. He gives them that change of heart just at the same time he gives them faith to trust in Jesus Christ. It's a work that God performs. It's a change of mind and heart that God produces. Consider these verses. When they heard from the book of Acts, Peter reports about the Gentiles uh, coming to faith, and it says, when they heard these things, the report, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance is the gift of God. And then Paul instructs Timothy, as Timothy is uh, pastoring the church in Ephesus, and the Lord's servant, meaning Timothy, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do you see what this is? Salvation. I'm just going to be blunt, okay? It's God's doing. He gives us faith. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Both faith and repentance are things that God gives someone for them to turn to Christ. And so that's why they called for repentance. Because it's what God does in people. And without God at work, it is impossible for someone to repent. They have no inclination in that, in that direction. Let me use, insert an application here. You and I must also call people to this change of heart and mind. Because it's a gift of God in the same way that faith in Christ is. This change of heart is what God does when he saves someone. But this idea of turning away and regretting your former way of thinking and, and living, it's almost been completely deleted from the modern gospel, from our presentation of the gospel. And it's simply, many times comes down to ask Jesus into your heart. What did Jesus say? Repent and believe. And these men are doing nothing more than saying what their master said. Repent and believe. And you and I, as we share the good news of Christ with other people, hey friend, God calls you to leave all that behind and to turn away from it and to turn towards him and place your faith in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And I'm, not, I'm, 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 I'm no 
great mind as far as the church goes, but I've read other men who do have great minds, and this could largely be why the church is in the condition it is in the United States of America. You mean all I have to do is pray the sinner's prayer, and that's it? And they're quickly told yes. And once you say those words, don't ever doubt it. They're, they're, it's, it's, that's not good. It's really bad. Because the message of the gospel, the message of Christ, repent and believe. Whether you use the word repent or not, whether you think it sounds old-fashioned or not, the idea is to have a change of heart and mind. There was a pastor, Great Britain, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. His name was J.C. Ryle, and he put it this way. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All need to be brought to a sense of their sins, to a sorrow for them, to a willingness to give them up, and to a hunger and thirst after pardon. All, in a word, need to be born again and to flee to Christ. This is repentance unto life. Nothing less than this is required for the salvation of any man. Nothing less than this ought to be pressed on men by everyone who professes to teach Bible religion. They go out proclaiming, and of all things, they're proclaiming repentance. And of course, the flip side of repentance is faith. They're not separate things. Repent and believe. Uh, they happen simultaneously. They're involved in another activity. In addition to proclaiming, we see them casting out demons. Uh, look in verse 13. And they cast out many demons. It seems to be closely associated with the next activity they're engaged in, which is healing. And this is in the second half of verse 13. And anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And together, these last two things, casting out demons and healing, and other miracles are sometimes called signs and wonders. Jesus performed signs and wonders and gave the 12 authority to perform signs and wonders to demonstrate that their message was authentic, to demonstrate that what they were proclaiming was true. This is the effect that Jesus' signs and wonders uh, had on the people who heard him. One person this affected was a man named Nicodemus in John 3. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, Jesus, we know you're the real deal because nobody can do things like you are doing. Uh, these things authenticate who you say you are and what you are proclaiming in the public. They marked him as genuine. They marked him as authentic. The same thing was true of the 12. Uh, the book of Acts records this of the 12, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's these men who we've seen are given special authority to uh, over unclean spirits and to heal. 
uh, performing these signs and wonders so that their message is uh, regarded as authentic and they are regarded as the genuine article. Listen also in Acts 14. So this is Paul and Barnabas. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It was their certificate of authenticity, these signs and wonders. They also, signs and wonders, demonstrated that Paul's ministry was genuine. Uh, this is found in 2 Corinthians. The signs of a true apostle. Remember he was writing about false apostles? Look guys, you want to see the real deal? Think about what I was like when I was with you. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Look guys, I had, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, that's a weird way to put it with an apostle, isn't it? Uh, I'm the real deal. I'm the article. I have the certificate of authenticity. These signs and mighty works demonstrate that my message is true. Listen to Dr. Sproul kind of wrap this up, explaining um, why he gave authority to the 12 to perform these signs and wonders. Why did Jesus do this? His reason had to do with the true purpose of miracles, which is one of the things that Christians seem to misunderstand more than anything else in the Bible. His words, not mine. The fundamental purpose of miracles, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, was to authenticate agents of revelation. You know, back, we were talking about baseball cards at breakfast this morning, and you'd missed a fascinating conversation as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but back when they were, I mean, they were big business. And back in the 90s when baseball cards were all the rage, well, uh, people began to uh, forge uh, autographs. And they discovered that there was a place in China where Chinese women would were forging Ted Williams' signature. It's amazing because Ted Williams was in fact deceased at the time but that all these Chinese women could imitate his handwriting so perfectly. And so sports memorabilia began to be sold with a certificate of authenticity. And back when I was collecting those things, I bought a hockey puck signed by one of the Chicago Blackhawks, and it came with a certificate of authenticity that the company that sold it to me said one of our employees was there and saw this signed by the guy. This is authentic. Now, there's that, and plus it was on fluorescent pink paper. And nothing screams authenticity like fluorescent pink paper, in my mind. So I knew how to, I had the real thing in front, of, in front of me. And if I, this might be a crass way to illustrate this point, but that's what signs and wonders were. Uh, they were certificates of authenticity for God's people his agents of revelation, one of which was Jesus himself. It authenticated his message as well as the 12 apostles. And so we see their success in this second part. Uh, we see them engaging in these three things, proclaiming, preaching, heralding. 
casting out demons and healing, performing signs and wonders, in other words, uh, as a means to authenticate themselves. So these are the two things about the dynamic duos of Jesus. Uh, two things. First, the sending of the twelve that we saw in verses 7 through 11, and, and these four components uh, that we observed there. And then second, we saw uh, the success of the 12 and the three activities they became involved in. By way of application, I simply want to drive home the point that I made earlier, that though we are not apostles, uh, maybe apostles spelled with a capital A, uh, not given the same authority that the 12 were given. Uh, we are lowercase apostles, small a. We are also sent out by Christ to represent him, to share his message, not with the similar authority that they had. We are have some measure of his authority through the Holy Spirit who indwells us, but not like these 12 men uniquely had. Did you know that you're an, an emissary of Christ? An, an ambassador for Christ? It's not the kind of thing where you say, well, I'll, I'll just stay home and let others go. I mean, you don't have to go across the, the world. but maybe across the street. Not necessarily to China. But maybe in the cubicle next to you. Maybe Montenegro. But definitely up the stairs of your house to that other bedroom to proclaim the, the good news of Christ and his atoning death. And calling those you encounter, you've got to turn your back on some stuff. Christ calls you to leave it behind and trust in him and pursue him. That's the kind of going every one of us is called to. Your going is going to look different from my going. I'm stuck working with church people most of the day. You know what they're like. I said that with a wink. Please don't, don't be offended by that. You will encounter far more people who don't know the Lord than I ever will. They're around you at school, at work. And you've been put there for a reason. And that's when you have the opportunity is to be an ambassador. Not a capital A apostle, but a lowercase a apostle. You're sent there. And may all of us uh, faithfully proclaim Christ in those places. Let's pray. Remind us, Christ Jesus, of, of just what it means to be your follower. Uh, to be your learner. To come after you and, and to take up your cross and uh, join, uh, join your army, join your ranks 
and Jesus press into our hearts this morning from this passage that in a general sense, in, in, in a secondary sense, every one of us is, is given a similar call by you to go out. And whether it's to go out across the street or whether it's to go out crossing the world or whether it's to go upstairs to our children's bedroom, we are all called to be going. Um, it's not an option that others can go and we just get to sit. It's true many of us might do most of our going through giving, but still we're called to go. And so, Savior, I pray that you would help us to put this into practice this morning, that we would be faithful apostles, little a, small a apostles for you, and faithfully share your message and represent you to those around us. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.